You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, Digital Content Editor for the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Today we are joined by Barrett Raymond. He's a nurse practitioner and a graduate of the Brigham Young University. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Raymond. I'd like to begin by asking you to introduce yourself and to explain how you began your career in research and addiction, and specifically electronic cigarettes. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, glad to take this opportunity to talk a little bit more about this. This is uh, really kind of uh, an exciting field, and, and it's been really fascinating to, uh, to be involved with, uh, with this study. Uh, my name is Barrett Raymond, and I uh, initially got interested in uh, electronic cigarettes um, because of a family issue. My brother uh, was deployed to Iraq for a year, and when he came back, he came back uh, smoking tobacco cigarettes. Uh, it was kind of a surprise for all of us and, and a bit of a surprise for him as well, I imagine. He uh, struggled to quit, uh, went through some ups and downs, tried some different things, and, and really had a difficult time. Uh, when he was introduced to e-cigarettes, uh, he personally felt like it, it really helped him to move away from tobacco cigarettes and to instead... Uh, use uh, uh, electronic cigarettes, and eventually he uh, was able to reduce his nicotine amount to what they considered was the lowest level, and and that was really kind of a fascinating process to watch him. And of course, as a nurse practitioner uh, and a provider in family medicine, uh, we get to ask this question all the time: Is uh, electronic cigarettes something that is more beneficial than tobacco cigarettes? Is it, is it a tool? Uh, that they can use to help quit tobacco cigarettes, and I thought that was a fascinating question, but one that we really couldn't answer. Um, so after exploring that area uh, quite a bit more, um, actually watching uh, how the product was mixed up and everything, uh, again, I found it uh, quite fascinating, and when it was time to uh, decide on an area of study uh, while I was working on my thesis at BYU, um, this was something that really popped up, and I was wondering how we could investigate it in order to help provide more information to uh, healthcare providers out there so they can make more educated uh, decisions and advice to their patients. And that's really what got me interested in this area. Okay. So it sounds like anecdotally you've, you've heard of some success stories using the e-cigarettes, um, but uh, have you noticed that there is a flip side to that? It sounds like from the paper um, what you found is that there's a lot of variability um, do you think that variability in the nicotine content uh, makes them a less appealing choice for cessation? Yeah, I, I actually uh, went through a lot of different uh, uh, thought processes when we wanted to come up with this study and, and finally dialed it into you know, the very narrow uh, field of, of the nicotine content in the cigarettes. I, I found it fascinating how uh, nicotine as, as such a potentially uh, addictive and, you know, toxic substance in, in even small quantities was just being mixed up using, you know, measuring cups and teaspoons and, and run-of-the-mill kitchen equipment um, by, by, you know, essentially high school graduates that, you know, really didn't have any much experience in chemistry or, 
or this type of a field. And so, so I was, I was highly concerned that there was something that, uh, you know, may not be quite right about that. And, and I felt like this would help answer that question. You know, is this something that would be beneficial uh, to patients? And so when I, when I dove into it and we started getting the data back, um, it really was eye-opening. Um, uh, most, uh, most of the industry uh, self-regulated to a standard of plus or minus 10%. And you'll find that um, in, in many different fields that uh, when it comes to uh, an adequate tolerance, plus or minus 10% of the stated label uh, amount is, is relatively acceptable. Um, in the study, we found uh, um, significantly more um, were outside of that range, anywhere from 35% less than the stated amount to 53% over the stated amount. Now, clinically, you know, that, that may or may not have a significant impact. You know, if you, if you believe you're doing a, a certain level of nicotine, say 18 milligrams per milliliter of nicotine, and you're actually getting 22 or 23 milligrams per milliliter of nicotine, you know, is, is that going to make a, a huge impact? And it may or it may not, depending on what you're trying to achieve with the nicotine level in the cigarettes. If you're trying to decrease it, then, then clearly you're getting more than what you think you're getting. And, and if you're trying to just kind of stay at, a, at an even level, um, then it may or may not really have a big impact. Um, but what was more fascinating, and I think this is really what opens up the question for future study, is uh, the, the nicotine solutions that were advertised as, as nicotine-free or zero milligrams per milliliter of nicotine actually contained uh, anywhere from uh, a trace amount. In fact, we found uh, detectable nicotine in over 93% of the, of the samples we tested. Um, so either a trace amount, um, but we did have a, a handful, especially from two, uh, two vendors, that had anywhere from 5 milligrams in a 0 milligram labeled product all the way up to 22.3 milligrams in a zero labeled product. So that was that was really eye-opening. And I think, you know, the, the application for that in the real world is uh, in, the, in the teens and adolescents that may be dabbling in some of this because, you know, they, they see it as a new and upcoming trend and, and their friends are doing it or, or whatever their, their reasons are. Um, and then the parents know about it, but they see the zero milligrams nicotine in the solutions. And, and perhaps they feel, well, if it's just flavoring and it's just kind of, kind of fun, it'll be a fad that'll pass. But in fact, you know, these, these people are being exposed to uh, relatively small amounts of nicotine, um, but a small amount of nicotine over a long period of time, you know, we really don't know what the potential addictive um, component of that is. And so, so I think it's fascinating, you know, are we, are we going to be start seeing an uptick in, in, um, in adolescents that are, that are addicted to these substances because they started out with something that was supposedly nicotine free. Right. And uh, yeah, you mentioned in your study that uh, 66% of teens thought that they were using only the flavored liquid without nicotine. So it sounds like they were maybe conscious enough to know about the nicotine content, but they were probably misinformed because of the, uh, the kind of <coughs> deceptive amount of nicotine that is present. Correct. And, and I, you know, I, I want to give the benefit of the doubt to the, to the suppliers in, in thinking, you know, that they are not intending to, you know, to provide samples, you know, that were, that were mis mislabeled. Um, but I think it just kind of comes back to the, the industry itself and, and how it's kind of been formed at a at kind of a grassroots level, you know, in basements and in, in kitchens um, as they sold these to the local consumers. But it's kind of spread to be uh, having a much more significant impact. Um, as these suppliers were the top distributors in the United States uh, through uh, online sales. 
So, so yeah, there's, there's a huge potential of, of exposure to nicotine uh, in these adolescents, and it's concerning. Okay. Um, <clears throat> what do you feel are the, the, first, the long-term implications of the paper that you wrote, but also the implications of the new um, federal guidelines that are going in place that, uh, that would hopefully correct some of this? Yeah, um, I initially started this study uh, before those guidelines uh, were implemented, and uh, and the the really the purpose of it was to investigate um, you know this one uh, component of the e-cigarettes, the nicotine content, and whether this was something that you know should uh, require regulation. And I think the paper supported that that regulation you know was needed in this area. And then about. Uh, most of the way uh, through the paper, the, the, the FDA came up with their new regulations. And, and so I think it really went hand in hand with supporting that, um, that, uh, you know, there is a, a bit of a need here. Um, I, I think the uh, manufacturers have, you know, have done well in, in trying to uh, maintain a certain level of, of accuracy. And, uh, and I think they'll continue to, you know, to, to make an effort to do that. But I think, I think holding them to a to a, a specific standard uh, as far as registering their product and um, and identifying um, all the components of it, um, I think that's going to be uh, even more helpful in in regulating this field and helping to control uh, some of the quality that the products are are produced. Yeah, and and you you did mention the American E-Liquid Manufacturing Standards Association. Um, but I got the sense because most of these distributors and these are some of the biggest distributors that you studied. Um, they weren't bound by any agreements for that organization. Um, how big do you f feel like that organization is, or what kind of impact do they have? Well, I feel that uh, that the organization, the the AEMSA, um, you know, I they I don't believe it's it's as big as it could be. It's it's a voluntary organization, um, and and as the the manufacturers join that, they uh, they're expected to. Um, to uphold their standards to the organization's uh, accepted standards, which include the plus or minus 10% range, um, as well as some other quality control aspects of it. Unfortunately, uh, all of the manufacturers that were the top distributors here in the United States uh, were not members of that organization. And so I think it's, I think it's interesting, um, you know, why they, why they're not a member and and if there's something you know that could be uh, encouraged to you know to get some of these major manufacturers to join, uh, even if it was a, a, a regulation you know by the FDA that uh, that manufacturers with a certain volume you know required to uh, be part of a professional organization um, in order to uh, you know encourage uh, uh, accurate uh, accuracies uh, and similarities among the different members of that organization. But no, none of, none of the members were that uh, none of the vendors that I sampled uh, were actually part of this organization. So I found that kind of interesting. Um, so I, I think I'd like to wrap up by just uh, mentioning one of the statistics that you had at the beginning of your paper about how the forecasted growth of e-cigarettes. Uh, is 37 percent between 2014 and 2019, and that I think demonstrates to me how big of an issue this is, uh, and how many lives this has the potential of impacting. Yeah, this 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 industry has just been growing exponentially since it was first introduced. Um, I don't think anyone really could have predicted that uh, that the number of of e-cigarettes that were originally just considered kind of a, a fad or or kind of a unique way of, of inhaling uh, tobacco products 
uh, would really reach uh, the widespread use uh, um, that it is today. Um, the worldwide, you know, users um, are significantly coming close to uh, approaching that of tobacco cigarettes, and and I think that growth is just going to continue um, at at the same rate it is. And I would not be surprised if it uh, overtakes uh, tobacco cigarettes here in the next 10, 20 years. Um, it's, it's a fascinating area, and I think we're just going to see it become more and more uh, prevalent in today's society. Yeah, yeah I agree, and I, <clears throat> I appreciate the work that you've done in this area because the, I think it's a pretty important article, and it sheds some light on just how uh, maybe potentially addictive uh, you know, even, even the no-milligram uh, nicotine formulations are. So thank you for the work that you do, and thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit more about this. I think it's a fascinating area, and I think there's still a lot of work to be done in, uh, in discovering the, uh, the addictive uh, potential of the substance. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.